I draw your attention this morning back to God's holy word found in Ephesians 2. We will be continuing in Ephesians 2. I would like for us to read Ephesians 2 this morning, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and heavenly Father, we we thank you, Lord, that you've given us this day to come before you, to enter your, your courts with thanksgiving, to praise you, Lord, for all that you have done in the gift of your Son, in the grace that you've bestowed upon us through him, in the life that you've, been, you've given to us in him. Lord, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And Lord, we, we seek to praise you for that here this morning. Lord, we, we seek to glorify your name. Lord, as we look through, through the, to the word, Lord, we pray that you would just uh, let us know your presence here with us. May the Spirit open our eyes and and uh, make our hearts receptive to your word this morning, that we would hear from you, Lord, and that we would uh, feed upon your word here this morning, Lord, to, uh, to be used to meditate on throughout this week, Lord, to draw us closer to you, closer together as a body under our head, Jesus Christ. Lord, be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we had what I truly believe was a privilege to look at uh, verse 7 here in Ephesians. Privilege to look into why all that God has shown us so far here in the words that he breathed through the Apostle Paul to us. Paul penned these words by inspiration of the Holy, Holy Spirit. But as he, as he penned this epistle to the Ephesians... Uh, We've looked into this. We've looked at at the why uh, that we looked at last week in in verse 7. And I hope that you had time to reflect on this throughout the week. My my week ended up being pretty busy. Uh, It was was kind of chaos uh, in a lot of ways, but I constantly found my mind going back to this throughout the week. Why did God do all this? Why? And we answered that, didn't we? For his glory. 
so that he might show, what does verse 7 say? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All that comes after what Paul tells us God has done, so that. Here is your reason. Here is the why behind all this. And we have here again this morning in verse 8, a 4, that connects us back once again to that which precedes it. Paul has taken us through as we have seen, and he's shown us behind the curtain, so to speak. He's, he's let us catch a glimpse of what God has done for us and why. The reason given to us that we've just stated is that God might be glorified. And it is here we find ourselves this morning with a few verses that are tied to this concept of God's glory on display. They're not only tied to it, they're not only bound to, to it, but, but they're bound in such a way that they cannot be separated. You can't separate God's glory from His grace. You can't do that. For, the apostle tells us, in verse 8, by grace you have been saved. Salvation by grace, I think we could refer to as the great distinctive of the Christian faith. It's the, the manifestation of it and the proclamation of it and the glory of God in this salvation by grace is the great end or goal of redemption. This distinctive doctrine is completely contrary to any and all other forms and systems of religion that we have in the world. Completely contrary to them. And it counters them on every front. In every facet of false religion, true religion, gospel, the Word of God counters them. They may show some similarities to those who look at them from the outside or from afar, but in reality, when they're viewed at their core, all other religions are opposed to the truth that we find in Scripture. In all other religions, think about this, and think about all the other religions that are out there. All other religions you must achieve. You must gain. You must work. You must earn salvation. You must earn paradise. You must earn enlightenment. This is what every other religion on the face of the earth teaches. But the truth of the gospel, the good news, is something altogether different, is it not? The truth of God's holy and inspired word is that salvation is by grace. So let's dig into this a little bit this morning and look at what God tells us from verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2 in particular. In this 8th verse of Ephesians 2, we have the summation of all that comes before it. And the sum is stated very, very simply. But the simplicity of the statement doesn't in any way detract from the greatness of the depth of truth that is contained in the statement. <coughs> The, the deep truth that we have in this, this very, very brief, very simple statement 
that salvation is by grace. Let's look for a minute at what grace is. Paul tells us, for by grace you have been saved. Now, what grace is, is nothing new to us, but it's worthy of repeating. Here are some some ways of defining grace. Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God. It can be described as undeserved favor, undeserved acceptance and love. The undeserved, undeserved favor of God in providing salvation for those deserving of condemnation. Another Bible dictionary puts it like this. God's unmerited favor towards humanity and especially his people realized through the covenant and fulfilled through Jesus Christ. I think that's a pretty good one because it sums it up in and through Jesus Christ. Another puts it like this. Grace is God's forgiving mercy as gratuitous and opposed to merit. And quite simply, grace has been described as a free gift. So all these definitions that we've, we've stated here support what our text is revealing to us this morning, that grace is a gift, undeserved, unearned, unmerited, with nothing at all in respect to our works or our worth. So here Paul gives us this summation. The cause of all this that God has done in planning and securing salvation for us. It is by grace. Once again, we could scan over what we've already been shown of God's actions here, as Paul has described them for us in Ephesians 1, leading up to where we are in Ephesians 2. Paul, in the very beginning, calls these that he's writing to saints. And they are saints by what? They are saints by the grace of God. He tells us that they have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Chosen by what? By the grace of God. They've been adopted by the grace of God. They've been redeemed by the grace of God. They've been sanctified by the grace of God. They've been preserved by the grace of God. And in the second chapter, these that were dead have been made alive by the grace of God. Paul is pointing us to the working of God in all these different facets of salvation. The cause of which is shown to us in verse 8, summing it up as he states and all that he's detailed prior, prior to this, he sums up in this verse 8 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. God has chosen to save us in this way. He has accomplished salvation in this way that it might resound fully and totally to His glory that we dealt with last week. We looked at that last week. Romans 3, if you turn with me to Romans 3, 21 through 26... Romans 3:21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God 
has been manifested apart from the law through the law and the though the, although excuse me although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of god through faith in jesus christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's by His grace as a gift, Paul says here in Romans. All have sinned. All have fallen short. All of us have been alienated from God. All of us were at enmity to God. Under His wrath, according to what we've read in Ephesians, we were children of wrath just as others. The text we have looked at a few weeks ago tells us that we are children of wrath just as others. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We've, we've walked after the course of the world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. All these things that we were. But God, in His grace, has made a way... And this is what he, Paul is telling us here in Romans 3. God has made a way that he can be gracious and yet remain just. This is an amazing concept. This is what he means in verse 26 when it says that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God in his grace has provided for us a sacrifice, a substitute, to bear the penalty of our sin. The wages of which is what? It's death, right? The wages of sin is death. Isn't that what we deserve in our sin, in our trespasses and our sins? Children of wrath, just as the others, deserving of the wrath of God? Yet he has, he has made a way that he can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is what the Old Testament points to. If, if you remember back, the, the law and the prophets even, according to Romans here, bear witness to this. The day of atonement where the sins of the people were graciously and ceremoniously transferred onto one of the goats, and that goat was then sacrificed, and then the other goat was released out into the wilderness as a picture of sin being removed from the people. This is foreshadowing. This is a picture. This was something that was done that wasn't efficacious. It wasn't, it wasn't really taking away sin itself. It was pointing towards that sacrifice that would come that would take away sin. 
And this is what is done for us in Christ as our substitute. Dying in our place, bearing our sin on the cross, and removing the guilt of our sin. Taking that sin away. Do you see this? Look at what God has done in this for by grace are you saved. Ephesians 1, 7-9 says, In Him, we looked at this several weeks ago, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ." The purpose of God set forth in Christ where He might be just and the justifier is placing our sins on Christ Jesus, meeting out His just wrath against sin that was ours, but doing that to Jesus Christ, our substitute on the cross of Calvary, so that He might give us grace and still remain just. This is what he did. This is what all those Old Testament sacrifices pictured. In Christ. Do you see how Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is tying all of this together for us? He's tying it up and giving it to us in a nice package with a nice bow on it. You're saved by grace. For by grace are you saved. Here is the great end of redemption. It's so plain, so straightforward. Salvation is entirely of God's grace. Every single part of it, every part that we've read about throughout Ephesians, from Him choosing to Him carrying out Redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ to Him sealing us with the Holy Spirit to the point that we will be resurrected from, our, from the dead and raised, even these mortal, mortal bodies remade into, into a new body, resurrected, glorified, and raised up to meet Him for eternity. This is an amazing thing that is included in this grace of God entirely of grace. By grace, God poured out His wrath on Jesus Christ so that we who were once under the wrath of God might be justified, declared to be righteous through the grace of God in and through the sacrifice of Christ. All glory in salvation goes to God. Every bit of it. Start to finish. And it's for by grace, Paul says, you have been saved through faith. Here we find in Ephesians 2 verse 8 that there is a lot of disagreement among those who call themselves even Christians. By those who hold to a semi-Pelagian or an Arminian view of this passage, uh, they would have us to believe that yes, salvation is the grace of God, but they would say that acting in concert with that salvation by grace is the faith of man. That it is man working that faith that makes salvation possible. 
they say that the next part of this verse, verse 8, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, is speaking of salvation by grace. That it is not in reference to through faith. Then there are those who are on our side of the issue, those who believe that we, like we do, that would say, no, this is, this is not your own doing. This, this, even this faith is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's speaking of faith itself being a gift of God. And scholars are, New Testament scholars and theologians are deeply divided over what this gift refers back to that we find when it says, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And there is absolutely no definitive and concrete answer as to which clause this gift refers back to, salvation by grace or through faith. I really don't think it matters. And I have a mind to believe that it refers to both clauses together. It's the whole of salvation. It's salvation by grace through faith. Those things are not your own doing. They are the gift of God. Because in reality, there's no way that salvation by grace can be separated from the faith. There's no way that this can be. This is the way God has chosen to work. Ian Hamilton says, By its very nature, faith has no constructive energy. Faith relies completely on another. It is Christ-reliant, not self-reliant. Faith involves the abandoning of self, not the congratulating of self. Faith kills all human boasting. And even the faith we believe with is God's gracious gift. You see, that is the issue when you make faith something inherent in us. When man makes it into an ability, this, this, this concept of faith, you turn faith into a work upon which you can then have grounds for boasting. This is why I'm convinced that when Paul says that this is not your own doing, it is a gift, it is the gift of God, I think he's referring to the combination of the two because salvation in each and every part, is a gift of God's grace. How are we to have faith in something that we cannot see? Isn't this the issue that Christ was, was dealing with Nicodemus regarding in, in John 3? When, when Nicodemus came by night and met with Jesus and had some, some questions for him. Wasn't one of the issues that Jesus brought up uh, telling him, in, in telling him that he must be born again, that, that he must be saved? Because if he was not born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you couldn't see the kingdom. How was he to see? How was he to have faith if it was 
not, it's not inherent in mankind. He has to be given faith. Just like we are saved by grace through faith, both of those things, the grace that we receive and the faith that we receive is a gift from God. Faith is not something that is natural to our fallen flesh. There's no secret ability or power hidden somewhere in the depths of the, you know, these deepest recesses of our humanity. This, this, it's, it's, it's not in us until it is given to us. We, we don't have faith until we have something that we can see. It's, it's gifted to us with regeneration. We're given a view of Christ that shows us our inabilities and graciously causes us to view Christ as the one to be relied upon. We abandon self and look to Christ. That is the essence of what faith is. This salvation by grace and this faith are amazing, gracious gifts of God. They have nothing at all to do with the flesh. Nothing. One of the commentators stated this about this, this phrase. Um, this phrase, it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. He said this parenthesis most likely refers to the whole complex of salvation by grace through faith as a gift of God. Otherwise, or excuse me, others, however, take this as referring specifically to faith. In either case, since faith is included in the whole complex of salvation, faith itself must be understood as a gift of God and not as a human achievement. Sinners are dependent on God's gracious gift for their believing response to Christ from the moment of their conversion. It's all of God. It's all a gift. Paul makes explicit here what is implicit elsewhere in the New Testament about the ultimate source of saving faith. If you, if you want to write this down and go to it later and look, or if you want to turn real quick to Acts 13.48, we have recorded, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They are appointed to eternal life and given the ability to believe. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you. Now listen. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe but also suffer for His sake. It has been granted to us to believe. It is a gift. Faith is a gift. You cannot muster up even faith from the flesh. What would that make it? That would make faith a work. And just in case we might start to think that this faith might be somehow inherent in the flesh, Paul goes on. And it's almost as if Paul anticipates what is going to be the cry of mankind throughout the centuries and the great ploy of our enemy to bring in a statement of truth and twist it and contort it and, and make it into something else. 
He would have mankind to believe that salvation, or at least faith, is something that they might accomplish. And that invariably turns into boasting. Think about that. Isn't that what happens anytime we have something to do with anything that has any weight to it at all? Think about in our normal lives. If I get a chance to be a part of something that has value, what am I going to turn and do about it? I'm going to boast. Going to boast. How many times do we get around? This happens at work all the time. A bunch of us get around and people start telling stories and boasting of their accomplishments, boasting about what they've done, boasting about what they earned. We always turn to boasting. Always. So Paul, to put things in a way that it should be beyond any possibility of misconstruing, relates to us in definite language here in our text that these things are not works. They are a gift. But even after all that, mankind in their flesh, mankind in their pride and self-sufficiency, furthered by the crafty one, that same one that was in the garden, craftier than anything else, devious, manipulating, would have it proclaimed that man's heart is not, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Most people today believe that there is an island of righteousness within the heart of fallen sinful man out of which they might exercise their faith and achieve salvation. But Paul tells us, let's look at it one more time. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in trespass and sin. That's pretty clear, isn't it? in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But mankind and our enemy would have us to believe what is contrary to God's Word. They would have us believe that mankind is sick, mankind may be weak, but there's still some semblance of life, some island of righteousness lingering in the deep, dark recesses of the human heart. And mankind and its fleshly desires do this so the pride of man is lifted up. And they would have some glory, if they could, in the work of salvation. Maybe not that salvation is not, maybe salvation is still a gift of God's grace, but at least I can exercise my faith. This is one of the devil's most effective ploys, to have mankind believe that something might be added to the grace of God, to the work of Christ in salvation. But this is not the truth that we find laid out in Scripture. 
Mankind is not the source of salvation. Mankind does not assist in salvation. Mankind is the recipient of the gift of salvation. But this is not accepted in the world. The world and false Christianity would bear the mark of truth. They would have some outward appearance of truth, but there is a rejecting of the narrowness and the exclusivity of the Christian faith, the truth of the gospel. True biblical Christianity, like we stated before, is the only religion that completely rejects the notion or idea of works as the basis or works as assisting in salvation. The gospel clearly declares, and Paul sums it up for us beautifully, that salvation is by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, not of yourselves, not of works. It's the gift of God. Do you remember when we read in our uh, previous reading this morning, in our congregational reading before the message from Matthew 7, regarding the narrow gate and the wide gate? Satan would have this wide gate marked with the same marking as that narrow gate. He would have have it marked the way to salvation, just like the narrow gate is. But this wide gate is wide enough to fit in your pride and your works and your boasting. The narrow gate strips you of every bit of that. It strips you of every claim to works, period. Every bit of pride and human ability strips you of your accomplishments and your merit, and it strips you completely of anything else except the grace of God. That's how narrow that gate is. No pride, no human effort, no human merit. It's not of works. We said last week that God is is jealous for His glory and He certainly has a right to be. As Creator, as God Almighty, all glory belongs to Him. But as as a way of illustration, turn with me to Judges. Judges 7. Right between Joshua and Ruth, Judges 7. Beginning with verse 1. And forgive me if I don't pronounce some things right. But uh, Judges 7. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Then the Lord then spoke to Gideon. He said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 
of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink... And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. So from 22,000 to 10,000, down to 300. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. And give you the Midian, give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore is in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell down and turned it upside down so that the tent fell, tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three camp, uh, three companies and put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet... I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when all they had just set when when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. 
When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the army sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. What did God say to Gideon in Judges 7-2? The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So what did God do so that Israel could not boast? He took the number from 22,000 down to 10,000, from 10,000 down to 300. And they went out and stood against the camp of the Midianites who numbered like the locusts in abundance. Their camels without number. This was a massive army that 300 men were facing. But God, in His grace, gave them over to the Israelites. Do we see what this speaks to us of God's salvation? It's of God. It's of God's grace. So that the people of Israel would have no way to boast. Let's turn now to a New Testament passage. 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, all those things we read about in Ephesians, right? So that, these are important phrases, so that, as it is written, 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in themselves. Why did he choose all these who weren't wise? Why did he choose all these who were weak? So that there would be nothing, no grounds of which they could boast. What here does mankind have to boast about? Paul, does he not tell us in verse 29 of this passage in 1 Corinthians, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God? Can you imagine standing before God Almighty and pleading with Him your works? Saying something to Him. Saying something like, Lord, thank You for Your grace that You showed me and bestowed on me, but, you know, I worked hard for it. I exercised my faith for it. I pulled myself up on my own bootstraps and took hold of you. That person who believes like this is like the person who Jesus, that we read about earlier in Matthew, uh, when, we, when we read in our congregational reading. person who believes like this is like the one who Jesus says, will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we, didn't we do mighty works in your name? Do you hear what they said to him? Didn't we do? Counting on their works? And what did Jesus declare to them? Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. Never knew you. You cannot come to Christ pleading your works. You can't come to Him on the grounds of what you have done. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, when he looks back over the course of his life, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Not because of my works, because of the grace of God, I am what I am. He says it has nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with the work. Even his work, he said, wasn't him, but it was the grace of God that was in him. And if anyone had something to boast of, wouldn't it be the Apostle Paul? Turn with me to Philippians. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. Philippians 3, 1. He says, finally, this is Paul again, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although, he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. Circumcised. Paul says he was circumcised on the eighth day. 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Paul says, blameless. But, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a man who says all these things about himself according to the flesh, yet he counts them as loss, he counts them as rubbish, for the sake that he may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. All his confidence in his flesh. All that he did, he counted as rubbish, as refuse, as trash, garbage, that he may gain Christ. Because all those things in the flesh would be a cause for boasting. We read earlier from Romans 3, 21 through 26, Paul goes on to say, in Romans 3.27, he says, Then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of it? He says, it's excluded. It's done away with. Our boasting is done away with as God has revealed in our main text this morning. In Ephesians 2.8-9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the very reason that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so belabored what he did in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. This is your state as God sees you. You're dead. You don't have anything to bring before me. Nothing at all. Your salvation is 100% of me. It's of my grace, God says. It's a gift. This is not to say that there are no such things as good works. Please don't misunderstand me. But good works must be put in their proper place. They must be. We may look at this further next week if the Lord wills, but look at the 10th verse of Ephesians here. Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are His workmanship. He is our Maker He is our Redeemer. 
There is but one maker, one giver, one bringer, one bestower, one earner, and one source of everything in salvation. One. He is our maker. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Which God prepared beforehand. He didn't create us. We aren't his workmanship because of our good works. We are created in him for good works. Do you see the difference? Do you see where the proper place for good works is? The good works are a result of the Spirit's life within us, granted to us as part of this salvation by the grace of God. It's not the basis or the reason for our salvation. We are made into a new creation in Christ for good works. Paul was so concerned with this, so concerned that he writes some pretty harsh words, but needful words in his epistle to the Galatians. Paul was writing due to the fact that there were there were some that had creeped into the church there at Galatia, some that had preached in these churches and taught in these churches where Paul once preached and taught. And he writes to them because he's concerned about what is going on there. There had, there had begun to be a group of people that were influencing these churches and seeking to attach a work to this salvation by grace through faith. They were seeking to preach a false gospel which required circumcision along with the grace of God. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them in Galatians 1 where he admonishes them and corrects them and points them back to the message of God's free and sovereign grace and salvation. In Galatians 1, He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's all for God's glory. I am astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul even includes himself in this, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, it's so important Paul is repeating it. I've said before, So I say now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let 
him be accursed. So serious was this to Paul that they would preach something that would mix grace and works that he placed an anathema, a curse on anyone who would preach a gospel that's really not another gospel, but a false gospel that would mix grace and works. That you've got to be circumcised along with the grace of God. That you have to do something in order to be saved except be the recipient of this salvation by grace through faith. That he places an anathema. Literally, what he is saying is let that person who preaches that gospel be damned to a hell that is made for the devil and his angels. That's how serious Paul was about the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace through faith. This is something worth taking a stand over. This is a life or death matter. And it's not about our physical life here, this 70, 80 years we get on this earth. This is eternal in its ramifications. If you have anything, anything to boast over this morning, I pray that God will drag you through that narrow gate and strip you of anything that you might have to boast over. That God would grant you His great grace and save you by His grace through faith. Impart to you even the gift of faith that you might look to Him and live. Paul says in Galatians 6, later on in that book that we just read from, but far be it from me to boast, except, he had one thing to boast in, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Because he knew what our text from Ephesians tells us this morning. In his heart he knew, and he preached and he proclaimed, for by the grace for by grace you have been saved through faith this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast let's pray lord we thank you lord for the time that we've had this morning to look to your word lord we pray that you would uh Speak to us through it, Lord. Cause us to meditate on, on this great grace that you've uh, bestowed uh, to us in salvation. Lord, the faith that you've given to us. Lord, never give us hearts that would boast of anything save in the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for it. In your name we pray. Amen.